Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, "What the f are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass." So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast is recorded on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present. I extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening here today. Sovereignty was never ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Welcome to Reclaim Me. I'm your host, Madeline Heather. Reclaim Me is a true crime podcast told by those at the centre of those crimes, the victim survivors. The general public often hears stories of victim survivors through the lenses of perpetrators or the media, and we're changing that narrative here. These interviews are raw and honest, so a word of warning is necessary as discussion and topics may be triggering or distressing for some listeners, so please use your discretion. If you need help or support, please see the suggested resources in the show notes of this episode or contact your local crisis service. Hello, fam. It is Maddie from the editing room. I am just coming in to let you know that we're picking up this week's episode with part two with Jake. Now, make sure that you've gone back and listened to part one last week, and I'm sure I don't have to describe that to most of you, but if you are new here or if you've just jumped onto this podcast episode, we are doing part two. So make sure you go back and listen to last week's episode with Jake Burgess so that you're not missing a single thing. But for now, let's get stuck back into my conversation with Jake. As an expert as well on domestic violence and specifically on the LGBTQIA plus cohort of people, what do you think that we can do in order to improve these outcomes or remove the barriers? I mean, as long as we have systems in our society, this is a big statement, okay? Be prepared. (laughs) As long as we have systems in our society that are hierarchical and someone has power over another person's life and decisions, we're not going to be able to unpack this very well. I'll give you an example. In Sweden, they have some of the most egalitarian laws in the world, but the domestic violence rate hasn't decreased. And it's because they haven't addressed patriarchy. They haven't addressed the the systems that we create. We haven't addressed the idea that men have power over women have rights over women and until we do that nothing will change so it's 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 an endemic thing that we can't change until we do those much bigger things if you look at australia as the example you know we have we have our say centrelink system community service system where if you're not good enough you can't access a disability support pension when you might not be able to walk for example i once did a job where i managed a very big government service and I had a man come into the room and I was prevented. This guy had 
one leg missing. And and I had to say to him, I'm sorry, you can't just turn up here and tell me you've got a leg missing. You have to have evidence from someone else because that's the way our systems are, are designed. He has to prove his worthiness. To, yeah. And in a really, the most absurd way, right? He clearly standing in front of me with one leg missing. And yet I couldn't do anything except say, you need to go to a specialist and a GP and you need to make sure that they fill in these things that say you have a leg missing. If we don't address our systems like that and say, actually, people don't need to prove they're worthy of support. I care, therefore they're worthy of support. If I don't invest in their support, we don't see change. If we're going to address domestic violence, we have to address those things. In terms of the LGBTQ community, it's some of the same drivers of domestic violence and sexual violence, misogyny, the patriarchy. You know, those things are still driving that violence. But we have nothing to go to. Even today, if I was to search for support for domestic violence, I can either access a specific service provider who works with LGBTQ people but what you'll find is that they don't have any experience and knowledge about how to work with domestic violence, which is extremely complex. Or I can go to a mainstream service who may or may not be supportive of LGBTQ people. A lot of those mainstream services are church-funded programs like, you know, uh, Salvation Army kind of programs or St. Vincent de Paul. I don't know if I'm safe. Now, I've been involved. I, I'm going to give you a, a, an example of what this means to people. So I was involved in making uh, it, making sure that one of these religious organisations was extremely inclusive, and that was from the policy point of view right down to their staff practices. And I was involved in that whole process, so I know that they have incredibly inclusive processes. I know that the lead of all of this is an advocate for LGBTQ people, and yet I would still feel unsafe going there because they're a religious organisation. And there will be people, if they see it as that religious service, they will believe that they can be discriminatory. And I have had those experiences, and so I still feel afraid. So until we find a way to bring all of that together, what we need is services, whether they're mainstream or niche LGBTQ services, we need them to be knowledgeable on domestic violence. It's not something you can easily understand. You know, I teach domestic violence to uni students and when we discuss coercive control and then they do their assignment on coercive control still about half those students don't quite understand coercive control it's a really complex thing to make sense of I often say to people it's an accumulation layer upon layer upon layer of small events and if you look at them as one event you see this thin piece of paper but if you look at them each of those events, suddenly you've got huge files and files, or you've got, uh, what do you call those things you put files in? Yeah, like a compendium or a filing cabinet. Yeah, yeah. Instead, you've a filing cabinet. You've got 20 filing cabinets, and suddenly you see how big it is. But until you understand those things, how can you work with LGBTQ people with experiences of domestic violence? And I think that was going to be my next question was about coercive control laws and the education of police on managing these different types of things. Like you've mentioned a few of the experiences that you've had in terms of the Mm. gaslighting um, and the 
kidnapping, basically holding you in a room where you can't leave. There's horrible things there, trying to make mm. you believe that things that are there that aren't real. Um, I think a lot of these things, as well as you're talking about them, are they're not one-off events. They're coexisting. Yeah. And I, I heard a statistic recently that was to do with the stalking and domestic violence behaviors. And that's that often over a hundred incidents will have occurred before somebody goes to the police. So on that intervention of going and saying, like you had said that something had happened and the police said, maybe fight back, you know, Mm. you're coming there having accumulated dozens, hundreds, or if not thousands of paper pieces of paper. Yeah. You're not going, Oh, this just happened. I better write that down. You're not doing a diary of all these things. That's Once you try to get protection, the police will often tell you to do that. But prior to that moment, you've not kept a record of these things. You often delete emails. You often delete text messages or accidentally delete them. I just recently accidentally deleted a whole series of someone's messages on their phone, and I don't even know how I did it. <laughs> and you can't get them back. You know, you can do those things, and then you've got no evidence. And so when we talk about these layers of papers, if I'm having university students, and I'm thinking these are master's students, if they don't understand coercive control, how is our uneducated, unskilled police force going to understand that effectively? And what are we going to put in place to check whether, you know, I know there's these systems in place. So in New South Wales, our laws come into play next year. I can't remember with Melbourne. I think yours come into play soon, don't they? Your coercive control laws? I don't know if we have had them approved. I don't don't think that, no. I can't remember offhand. I think you've got laws in place, but they're not there yet. But anyway, I can't remember. Um, I feel really scared. I also am deeply concerned in New South Wales, for example, that it only includes an intimate partner relationship. It doesn't include extended family members an uncle, an aunt, a cousin, a parent, a child, uh, you know, those it's just not even eligible to be considered under our coercive control law. And they said they're doing that because they need to do this bit by bit. But how do we know if they're actually doing it? And does that... The police are very protective of their information too. Yeah. Do you think that that's going to disproportionately affect the LGBTQ plus community as well? What... Mm-hmm. constitutes an interpersonal relationship and what constitutes um domestic violence like i said you know the um there were lots of little things said to me throughout my experience of trying to get protection but also just from the people in my life where there was a misunderstanding because my perpetrator was a woman of what that meant or often just total disbelief that it could happen or a playing down of how serious domestic violence was because she's a woman, which is actually a sexist way to think about it. But people don't realise that. Yeah, it is and incredibly sexist. How are we, you know, we know there's a problem in our police with sexism, a really, really serious problem, and we haven't addressed it. And then we're asking people to recognise domestic violence in our relationships. There's also homophobia in the police. So how are we going to be protected? And I, I don't mm. think that's going to happen. And high proportions of domestic violence perpetration from police officers. That's another major. Yeah, that's right. It's over 50% from memory. That's a huge percentage, higher than the general population. Yeah, we do have a huge systemic problem. And I think that's where a lot of 
people not only based on the horrible outcomes that are there, but a lot of people as additional barriers, like you've spoken about so many of them already, but as additional Mm. ones, like, you know, and I, somebody said this to me the other day and I thought it was a really powerful thing. Like, what are the, what are you doing? What asking police officers, instead of kind of saying people don't come forward, it's putting the questions back to them. Like, why aren't people coming to you? Like you Mm. have to, as an institution, address the issue and instead Mm. of asking the question you know people aren't coming or why aren't people coming or being frustrated when they do because you've got such high rates of domestic violence that you have to address and tend to you know seeing it for the problem that it is you should not have to convince a police officer that you're in danger like they should be Mm. able to risk assess and understand they've created those checklists for reasons, stalking yeah. as well is another one yeah. that really That's frustrates me. It very rarely gets um, criminal charges. My ex stalks me still to this day. So every time I speak out as a lived advocate in the media, she writes to them and she pretends to be her current wife. And she writes to them and tells them if she if they don't take it down, she's going to sue them, she's going to sue me. And, of course, none of that's ever going to happen. She's not capable of that. She doesn't work. And it's very expensive to do someone. So we, I know that's not going to happen. But it's been 13 years, and I never have named her. I've never, you know, done anything to um, make it clear who that is except to people who know me, and they already know that. So it's yeah. not new information to them. But she threatens everybody, and all it does is tell them, yet you're a perpetrator. Absolutely. You know, threatening, threatening public figures because someone's talking about domestic violence and it's not that's only one of the stalking behaviors that happens but that still happens now those things haven't stopped when my children are with me there is constant harassment of them so that she can stay in contact while they're with me she will every single time my children here find a way to make my daughter so upset that that she she will upset her by getting angry with her for not coming home even though there's family court orders in place that I'll take my daughter home early because she's too distressed and I don't want her to be distressed. I want her to be safe. So I let her go back to her mum's early because I want to protect her. Those things are still happening. Things about me get written in random places, you know, all those kind of little things. I'll get, I have to change my phone number every kind of year or two because she gets my number and starts calling nonstop, you know, and we don't charge people it's extremely unusual and the thing is as well if you were to retaliate you would go to prison likely oh yeah because i'm the man as well yeah and that's Mm. the frustrating thing as well it's i feel like people are just having to cop this and it's not the same thing in any way but my friend at the moment is being harassed and physically assaulted and having her property Mm. damaged by somebody that works in the same building as her and she's just having to withstand that and she's yeah. having she's gone to the police she's gone to everything she's gone to the council she's done any anything that she possibly can and the biggest advice is to just move and we're all sitting there saying you know like obviously and I said to her I'm like I understand and recognize how how difficult that is to hear yeah but because they're, what they're saying to you is I don't care yeah you don't have a right to be safe so yeah. move yeah which is going to cost more money to move so, you know, if you think about how much domestic violence costs that individual, it's just un- in- 
I don't think you could ever add it all up. You know, I had to start when I left from scratch. She kept everything. Eventually, she gave me these four boxes, and they were big boxes, but when we opened them, everything had been cut in half. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. So I never got any of my stuff back. My 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 ex's wife now, I'll see pictures from my daughter, and she's wearing my clothes. Like, it's really, you know, you lose so much, and there's no recognition of that, and especially by police. So when we talk about coercive control, I think we're in big trouble in terms of, those laws protecting people and then being used because it's so difficult to um, prove it's going to be really hard when you've got an uneducated police force who they say they're going to train but what does that training look like and how intensive is it and how real is it you know practical yeah that I don't feel confident you know I I remember I was part of a consultation with um, New South Wales government about it and I was listening and listening, and I just thought, I wish these laws were in place because I feel like I could probably be a case where they could prove it. Because I have so, my ex is an email writer, and they're pages and pages of stuff. And I think if those laws existed then, I probably could have got her charged. Maybe, maybe. She's very clever. You know, she's very clever at lying. She's a very smart person, and she will falsify evidence and things like that. She did that in our family court case. But then I think, would the police be equipped enough to even do it if I could? Because in New South Wales, those laws are not being 
uh, what's the word they use? You know, whether like retro- retros- retro- retrospectively yeah, retrospective, implemented. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, they're not doing that, which means bad luck. Oh, if you got abused yesterday from when we started these laws, you can't do anything. Yeah. Which is yeah. again, like it's it's one step forward, but three steps back in many senses, I yeah. guess, as well. But what do you think? I guess I was speaking to a psychologist recently. Um, uh, we did a recording together as well, um, and I was asking her those kind of questions, like how can we improve? And I, I just had this belief, and I'm a process improvement specialist, so when I think about you got the nudge, you know, yeah, well, stuff. when I think about processes, I would always say in any environment it would be if you've got too many things to change in a process because there are so many pain points then the logical conclusion is to blow it up and start again yeah and when i think about radical changes that we could make to processes you know for people who have experienced victimization like sexual Mm. violence domestic violence what if a trained professional psychologist was the person that you um with was your first point of contact in making any kind of statement so it wouldn't be a uniformed police officer what if it was court. what if it was a coercive control expert, you know, know right? that you would Amazing. talk to and they would be able to on behalf of you provide those statements to law enforcement and work together. Mm. Like, you know, I think like it comes back to that question of defunding the police and to put different systems in place. Maybe there are different investigative arms that are actually privatized in some way mm. or put into different formats so that people who are specialists can actually be a part of that investigative process. Like, what do you think about in those things? I've, I've, I've made the same suggestions. My The feedback I've got is, but will that, by taking that out of the criminal justice process, let's say it's a psychologist, social worker who's experienced in coercive control, will it lessen, will it make it become a private crime again, as it was historically? You know, we talk about public and private crime. Private crimes can't be proven because they're one-on-one. These are private crimes, and then they not they're not valued or taken as seriously. Will we go backwards in terms of our ther- uh, um, how seriously we take domestic violence by taking that away from that system? And I think the same in the family court. You know, if we had in the family court, I kind of think a little bit differently, which is that maybe we don't need that system at all, except for a piece of paper. And what actually should happen is a long term intensive. Court usually takes two, three, four years, right, just to get from one point to the next point where you get orders. What if we, instead of having that long process of court where paper goes backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards, we do that paperwork stuff, yes. But on the, the actual process is experts assessing the relationship because I still remember that first, um, the first family reporter at the end, she ended up convincing me to have a meeting with her with my ex, and I was terrified. My ex got caught stalking me on the day by the reporter, just by chance, right? Yeah. And because my daughter said, oh, mum took a photo of you and me. You know, it was just one of those kind of things. Yeah. Um, but she said at the end of this appointment where we sat together, she told my ex to leave, and she turned to me and she said, I believe you. Take a deep breath. You can breathe now. She saw it. She recognised it. If we had someone like that who stayed with you, you don't want to have changing people all the time because that makes it harder. You're kind of starting from scratch. If you had someone like that who's assessing what's going on and then they make recommendations because at the moment 
Most of our systems, our criminal systems, are based on one expert who meets you once. In my case, my expert met me once for an hour. In other situations, it might be they do psychometric testing and they meet you for a few hours, or it might be a day's session. But in my case, it was an hour. And she wrote a like 40-page report on that hour. And that's just not possible unless you're making no. things up. Yeah, so or drawing up. massive generalisations. Yeah, that's right, or using Freud. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, if that person spent three years with you working through having these um, side-to-side sessions where they're getting to know you as a person, they're doing, you know, like we would do when someone needs a diagnosis for a mental illness. It's a process. You don't just meet someone once and go, oh, you've got bipolar. Off you go. Have some tablets. We don't do that. We take time because we need to actually know the person to be able to understand the nuances of their illness. How can we do Why do we expect a court process to be effective when they don't actually assess a Access something properly. And I think that's just something I've been thinking about a lot is like if we were to blow it up and start again, what would it look like? And I think there are so many incredibly qualified people like yourself yeah. who do the mm-hmm. training, who have the knowledge, who yeah. could at least learn investigative skills as well. Maybe you could learn different techniques of police and be able to, yeah. you know, share that information across. It's it doesn't just have to, it shouldn't just have to be one police officer knowing everything because to be fair to cops, they need to know everything. That's and it's right. incredibly yeah. difficult. And they're seeing people at their worst. Yeah. And, you know, like you probably know this, right, that police often misidentify the victim and perpetrator. And it's yeah. because they're not, they don't have knowledge. They don't recognise that, you know, if you were to turn up to an incident in my house, if the police turned up, you would have been the calmest, happiest i would have been a frozen mullet because <laughs> that's me but other people are hysterical screaming yelling because all they in that moment all they can see is i need protection mm-hmm. and they will find that protection whatever way they can and we so police see that and they go oh that person's calm therefore they're the person who's not done anything when in actual fact you know if if it was an anger issue in domestic violence they wouldn't be able to do that because they'd and still they're still be angry. And they're exhibiting that sign of power and control, though. And the thing yeah. that comes to mind in this is Gabby Petito and mm. Mm. Brian Laundry being so calm and bro bro and happy chappy with the cops with and the shaking cops. hands and laughing yeah. and joke making sexist jokes and her hysterically crying and then her being yeah. the one that was charged yeah. with the domestic it's really violence. Common. It's really, really common. And that's simply just lack of knowledge. And how many people could be saved? We could have saved her if yes. people knew and understood domestic violence. And we and could have it. saved so many more. Yeah, 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 that's right. You know, we have um, systems in place that don't work. It's like child protection. It's another system that's meant to protect children from domestic violence and family violence, but it doesn't. And, and when it does, it's only when it's at the most extreme end that children get removed, generally speaking, unless there's that racist thing going on around Indigenous kids and stuff. But we actually have known for a long time that putting children in foster care has the same outcomes as if we just left them in the domestic violence, which are poor outcomes. Yeah. Uh, kinship care has different outcomes to those two models. 
But we know it doesn't work, and yet we continue doing it. Yeah. We also know that they're not really assessing very well. Then their, their caseloads, you know, in a normal casework role, you would have somewhere between four and eight clients when it's a really intense, complex situation. They have on average 75. Like, how are they, how can they possibly effectively assess relationships and families? And they've got such a high turnover of those staff who are mm. constantly handballing cases. They don't get paid very well. They nope. are underfunded and undersupported, and it is just mm-hmm. expected that you're going to be so psychologically damaged from doing that type of work that there's yep. going to be a high turnover rate. Like, well, I think again, the turnover like, is around nine months, the average turnover at child yeah, protection. It's, it's under 12 months, yeah. and it's coming from actually working close by those people and, and seeing yep. what was going on. It's very... And feeling powerless. Yeah. You know, and how often again, a caseworker has said to me, I know that there's a problem here, but the law doesn't allow me to protect this child. It's not bad enough. Yeah, exactly. Or a judge decides, I'll give that person one more go. I'll let them have another try. And then we see a, a dead child. Or we see a child who's now in the prison system as an adult and perpetrating themselves. Yeah. doesn't work. When a system doesn't work, we actually need to recognise and acknowledge it and go, hmm, we screwed up. This doesn't work. Let's try something else. Yeah. And that's okay. We do that in our jobs, right? When we make a mistake or we get something wrong or we try something, you know, it's like we're working with people. Sometimes I'll try something with someone and it doesn't work. And I have to be confident enough and gracious enough and an egalitarian in a way to go, uh-oh, got it wrong. Sorry, that's my, that's on me not on a person who's become a victim of that system. Yeah. On you to go, ooh, ooh. And it doesn't have to hurt. And one of the biggest things I actually say in my practice in my day job is test and adjust. It's something I'm mm. quite known for mm. because you're implementing new processes. You're implementing things yeah. that people will feel very uncomfortable with and getting somebody to work in a different way is always difficult. So, again, you can't change yeah. too many things at once. But I no. think when you do change them, I'm like, I just sit there and acknowledge with them. We're going to give it two weeks, for example. Let's see how yeah, it goes. You'll have support. Mm-hmm. And then what we'll do is from what we learn from that, we'll test and adjust. Yeah. You know, why this not? isn't the white why male and end all. Why are we so afraid of that? You know, why are we so afraid of going, I get why the government are because saying, oops, this doesn't work, might mean they lose the election. But what's more important to you, winning or creating safer systems and protecting people and creating a better society? Because people aren't victims. And that's the frustration I feel as well. It feels like it's about winning. It feels like it's not about logical, factual implementation of improvements. It's about being strategically minded to get what you want. It's not about being honest and accountable and getting what you need. You did mathematics, right? Let's think about it really logically. If you do math and you write two plus two equals five and you realise you got it wrong, you're not afraid to go, oh, I got it wrong and replace it with a four. We don't feel any emotional baggage around that. But we do when it comes to our jobs. We feel a sense of ownership over something. But we don't own the systems we create. You know, I don't own my program because I could die tomorrow and my program's going to keep running. And I could, if I'm not, if I'm hurting people, 
and I'm not willing to acknowledge it, what that tells me about me is that I need help, <laughs> right? Yeah. I'm the problem here. Actually, I need an intervention. And maybe that's what it is. We need to have a government intervention. I have to say maybe instead of having, you know, like a prime minister that gets voted in, we should have people who um, apply for the job and they get paid a kind of set wage, which is not what they're getting now. It's much lower. It's kind of the average wage in Australia. And what you'll find is you get people who actually want to do it, like people who end up in social work, you know. It's not a job where you earn money. My, my family call it moral points. They get money for their jobs and I get moral points. And there's some truth to that, but I wouldn't change careers at all. And I could. I come from a really wealthy family. Yeah. I could go and work in some of my dad's businesses and earn lots of money, but I have no interest in doing that because I care about people. And, yeah. I have to be authentic and integrous. And so does that government. It should. It definitely does. <laughs> um, <laughs> preach it to the choir. Here, here. <laughs> Come on, um, girl. <laughs> but we we are at time. I'd love to have you back again another time to talk more, um, especially about what it is that you do. But I guess is there anything before we wrap up that you wanted to cover that we haven't already no, I think for me it's just the more we share our journeys, and it can be really scary at first. I was terrified when I first started doing this, and I'm an introvert, and I'm a really, really shy person, and it took me a while. I uh, I, I started, my lawyer actually started me in this. She was like, you need to tell your story. You need to tell your story, and she connected me with some stuff, but I was doing very little and then there was a project happening at DV New South Wales, which is our pit body. And I still remember the first meeting I went to. I sat there. It was our training after I'd been accepted in this thing. And I didn't speak to anybody because that's me. I'm super shy. And now I that would never happen now because it's given me skills. But I'm also really confident in knowing that when I tell my story, it doesn't hurt me. Sometimes it can upset me for the moment. And it's okay to be upset in the moment. Sometimes it can trigger me and I need to address that. I've got to have the systems in place to support myself. But the more of us that tell our story and the more we tell our story, the more confident we are in it. And each time you tell your story, there is healing and justice in telling your story. I couldn't agree more. And I think the other thing is the diversity and voices that we hear from give so many more members of that community and population the permission to share their own stories as well. Mm. And I don't, one of the things I was really worried about when I started to create the Reclaim Me platform was that it was only going to be voices from white girls and mm. women. Yeah. And I've done everything I can to make sure that it's as intersectional as possible because I don't just mm. want it to be a resource for young privileged white women and not saying that they're not deserving. Of course no, they are. I'm one of them. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. It's saying that and acknowledging that our community is so diverse and it is so important that we raise the voices of everybody that we possibly can because those people are going to be the inroads and opening the doors for the people in their community and I think that's just really powerful so you know having you come on and talk about your experience and having a female offender and the experiences and the barriers that you've faced will educate so many people listening I'm just so grateful to have had you on no worries thank you for you for coming and finding me <laughs> and allowing me to share that journey 
I know I think I I actually don't know any other trans people doing this stuff. I think there might be one or two in Melbourne. Yes. But there's not a lot of us out there. But I think it's really important that more of us share our stories, particularly knowing those numbers of how many of us have experienced it. And the more we share, the more we sharing is power, not just to us, but to the next person because it gives them knowledge and knowledge is power. There's um, some resources that we're going to pop into show notes for this episode, but just before we clock off, you were talking before about mind colleges and, Mm -hmm. and some of the work that you do. If anybody's listening here today and maybe they want to reach out to you or they want to access some services, what can they do? There's a few ways you can contact me. One is through LinkedIn. It's always an easy one. Just find my name. The only tricky bit is that Jake has a Y in it. Um, the other place is that I, I'm on the board of an organisation called LGBTQ DV Awareness Foundation, and we're specifically there to build knowledge about our experiences and to get that heard by the community that we experienced it too, and that doesn't mean we're less by experiencing that as an LGBTQ person, and that it also doesn't mean LGBTQ people are less. So you can also reach out to me through that organisation. Or you can contact Madeline and we can connect. Absolutely. And you I think it's know that just... Madeline's my granddaughter's name, by the way. Oh, is it? <laughs> mm-hmm. Adorable. It's, it is the best name. Correct. Um, but <laughs> I think it's just, yeah, I'm grateful for that. And I think anybody on the spectrum of queerness as well, like it doesn't, mm-hmm. do, it doesn't discriminate. And I would like for all people to feel valid in anything that they've experienced, whether that be from child sexual abuse, child abuse, family violence, domestic mm-hmm. violence, any, any of those things that you've experienced, even if you're not sure, if you're not yeah. sure if, if coercive control has been a part or is a part of the current relationship that you're in, just know that there are resources out there. And in the show notes of this episode, there'll be links to everything I can find. There'll be links to the LGBTQ, what's it called? LGBTQ plus. LGBTQ DV Awareness Foundation. DV Awareness Foundation. Beautiful. So we'll have that link in there as well for people to access and go and Collect all the resources, reach out and speak to people. This is a place where we don't need shame anymore. Yeah. Thank you. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Jake, for joining us and thank you all for listening to Reclaim Me. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you do need help or support, please reach out to those crisis services or suggested resources in the show notes for this episode. Have a look after yourself and make sure that you're doing and taking the time that you need to process the information or to process anything that may have come up that was triggering for you. Lastly, I do have one ask. Can you please take the time to rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any platform that you listen to Reclaim Me on? This helps tremendously with me reaching additional people and making sure that we get the word out there that there is no shame or stigma that should be associated with being a victim of these crimes. If you could also share this podcast with somebody you may know, as you may not be a survivor yourself, but you sure as hell know one. Thank you again. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.